Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Since I started Wonder Media Network, I've really come to realize how much I didn't learn in school about the role of women in American history. Luckily, there are lots of books out there that can help fill the gaps. I listen on Audible. Whether you want to stay up to date with the latest political must-reads, or you want to escape politics altogether, Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks and original content to peruse. I'm currently switching off between The Woman's Hour and Crazy Rich Asians. Sometimes you need a little of both. You can get a free audiobook of your choosing if you go to audibletrial.com slash womenbelonginthehouse. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. Many of you are at the beginning of your professional, public, and political careers. You will have successes and setbacks too. This loss hurts, but please never stop believing that fighting for what's right is worth it. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder of Wonder Media Network. Election day has come and gone, and here at WMN, we're filled with mixed emotions. It was an incredibly historic day, but the results also show we have much work left to do. At least 101 women won races for the U.S. House and will serve in the 116th Congress, according to the Center for American Women in Politics. That's a record, even with some races undecided. There were a lot of firsts. Deb Holland and Sharice Davids are the first Native American women elected to Congress. Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar are the first Muslim women elected to Congress. Connecticut, Massachusetts, Minnesota, and Kansas will all send their first women of color to Congress. Veronica Escobar and Sylvia Garcia will become the first Latinas to represent Texas in Congress, a state that's nearly 40% Hispanic. And Iowa elected its first women to the U.S. House. For more on what happened, Here's Ashanti Golar. Ashanti is the national political director at Emerge America, an organization that recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office. I am feeling very, very excited about what happened on Tuesday night. One of the things that I talk about a lot is so many people call this the women's wave, the blue wave. But I've always said that this is a movement. This is something that is going to take time and that women are really galvanized not only to run in this election cycle, but in future election cycles. And what we saw was so many women making headway and gaining ground. 
are we where we need to be to be at parity with men? Absolutely not. But are we getting closer to being there? Absolutely. And I'm just so excited for all of the women who never thought about running for office before that put their name on the ballot and won, who are now going to be able to serve their community. But I'm also just so proud of those women who ran but didn't win, but were able to include in the political conversation issues and topics that probably were never being discussed in their district before and making their opponents have to address them so that the community was getting answers. So even though they didn't win, they absolutely made a positive impact. And I think that's something that needs to be celebrated as well. The progress is thrilling, but so much more needs to come. In 2019, four states will still have never sent a woman to the U.S. House. Alaska, Mississippi, North Dakota, and Vermont. Progress has also been unequal among the two major political parties. While there will be a record number of Democratic women serving in 2019, That's not the case for Republican women. In fact, the number of Republican women in the U.S. House will likely drop next year, according to the Center for American Women in Politics. Even after a year of historic wins, women will make up less than a quarter of the members of the House of Representatives next year. While fantastic candidates won, many incredible women also lost. Among the women we featured this season, the results were mixed. That's a normal part of politicians' careers that we don't often talk about. Here's Amanda Hunter. Amanda is the communications director at the Barbara Lee Family Foundation. The foundation did research about how women candidates who lose are perceived by voters. So because 2018 was a record year for women in politics, and we have been cheering and watching campaigns so closely, we started thinking about how few people realize that on Election Day 1992, which we all know has been famously dubbed the Year of the Woman, more than three times as many women lost their bids for Congress that year as won them. And we started thinking about the fact that historically, women who lose elections face a harder road back to politics than their male counterparts. It really seems like for men, loss is a regular and expected feature of a successful political career every U.S. president for the last half century, except our current president, has suffered at least one significant loss on his record. But women candidates really seem to be blamed and shamed in a different way and maybe internalize that failure. So we were really interested in seeing how voters perceive women candidates who lose and how women can set themselves up for success in their next run. One president who really defined America was elected president just two years after losing two Senate races, and his name was Abraham Lincoln. For one example of a candidate who lost last cycle and won last week, check out Angie Craig's story in Episode 5. My mom, my inspiration for starting this whole endeavor, lost her race. She's not alone, and I think it's important to talk about that experience. I also think it's vital for us to talk about real challenges to our democracy— voter suppression, and gerrymandering. Today, we're going back to where this all began. My mom, Kathy Manning. I actually moved back to North Carolina a few months ago, so I was home for the end of the campaign and the election. Okay, Kachi, you do some talking so I can tell if your levels this are good? This is Kachi Manyango. I'm speaking to you live from Jenny Graplin's bedroom. Keep talking. I am not a congresswoman. <laughs> I'm just a mom, and apparently 
a community hero. First, let's rewind and talk about the final few weeks of the campaign. As a reminder, my mom, Kathy Manning, ran to represent North Carolina's 13th district. She ran against an incumbent. And for more on her motivation to run and on the district itself, check out episode one. I think the most pressure I felt was during debate prep because I had never done a debate before. And because there was so much information I felt I needed to know, I put a lot of pressure on myself to make sure I knew everything and that I thought through every conceivable question that might be asked. Once I got through that, the next hurdle was dealing with some really awful ads. I felt great about the debate, but right before or after the debate, I can't remember when at this point, my opponent's allies came out with the second defamatory ad. And it was an ad that was shocking in how it was just flat out lies. I had expected him to twist my record. I had expected him to put up ugly pictures. I'd expected him to make fun of things that I thought were attributes, but I didn't expect absolute flat-out lies, and I didn't expect him to try to bring down one of the most respected charities in town to try to defame me and ruin my reputation. And that was really tough. So there was the pressure of the ads, the debate, and then we got to the debate. That went well. I adjusted to the ads, and I also sort of took some action that made me feel much better about it to get colleagues of mine to write a letter setting the facts straight. And then I felt like, okay, here we go. We've done everything we can do. The team set in motion the plan that they'd been working on forever to make sure that we had massive volunteers in all the counties knocking on doors, making phone calls, And the group of volunteers we had just grew and grew and grew. So there was a growing level of excitement. And we had people coming in from all over, friends from out of town, family members, volunteers who had heard about the race and just wanted to come in and help us win. So the last two weeks were really exciting. I just felt like we were absolutely moving in the right direction. And then for the final weekend, My kids came in. My sister and brother-in-law came into town. Some law school friends came in. It was really fun. So I felt we'd done everything we needed to do, and I felt great about it. Election day itself was filled with excitement. The day itself felt great because we went to four different polling sites, and everywhere we went, I had people who were excited to see me there. People wanted to shake my hand. They wanted to have their picture taken with me. The Sunday before Election Day, we went to two churches, and there was one man who came up and said, would you mind giving me your autograph? My mom would just never believe you came to our church. People just showed such appreciation for having somebody run as a Democrat and create a real ground game and really want to represent the people of this district. So there was so much excitement, and that continued through Election Day, and we had TV cameras following us, and... I just felt like everything was going exactly as we wanted. We did have some rain. (laughs) In fact, at one point in the morning, it was like a monsoon. But then the rain stopped, the sun came out, so we thought, okay, we can make it up with afternoon voting. And then we heard that there was a big rush of students voting at UNCG. 
And even though it wasn't a scheduled stop, I said, let's go. I've got to see young people voting. And when we went there, that was just inspiring. These kids were lining up. It was like somebody had said there's free food at the Weatherspoon Gallery, and they were just flocking in to vote. And when I introduced myself to them, they got excited. They wanted to have their picture taken with me. It was, I just felt like we had the momentum. There was such a level of excitement. Despite the feeling of momentum, the election didn't turn out in my mom's favor. Then I came home to write my speeches, a win speech and a loss speech. Honestly, I really thought I was going to win. And when my campaign manager came in and said, you better practice both speeches, I had been practicing the win speech. And I said, really? Have all the results come in? And she said, you better practice both speeches. And I said, but the numbers you've been telling me, she said, the numbers aren't there. There are just not enough votes out there, even if they're all for you. So I said, okay. And I put down the win speech and I took out the loss speech and I practiced it and added a few things. And then we got in the car and drove over to where we knew the watch party was going to take place. It was actually nice because we had a room just for our family so we could sit until it was absolutely clear that we weren't going to win. My campaign manager said, I need to talk to you about something. So we walked out into a hallway and she was just, she was heartbroken. She kept apologizing and I said, you didn't do anything wrong. She was an extraordinary campaign manager. She was unbelievable. A great manager, a great leader, worked endless hours and worked smart, put together an unbelievable team. And I knew why she was upset, but I didn't want her to blame herself for it. And then she said she was going to get the staff together. I sort of hadn't even thought about that, but she said, all right, I've got them all in a room. So I walked in this room and there must have been Oh, at least 50 young people. And these were, they were my staff that I had from the beginning, the interns that we had added along the way, the field organizers, and oh, just so many volunteers, including kids who I'd known as they were growing up, who'd come home and taken time off weeks before the election just to work on the race. So there was this incredible gathering of all these people who had worked so hard and were so enthusiastic and they were just crestfallen because they knew what I was coming in to tell them. So I decided that I just wanted to thank them because what they did was just extraordinary. Each and every one of them brought something incredible to the team. And the other thing I wanted them to think about was eight months ago, most of them didn't know each other. And through this incredible team building that my campaign manager had managed to achieve and also the other top team members, they had really developed into a community. And you could tell they loved each other. They loved working together. They felt so good about what they were doing and how important the work was. And I wanted to make sure that they took a moment to think about how they'd created this incredible team and how important their work was, and that this was the beginning, this was not the end, and that they needed to think about what we had achieved as a team, and that they needed to continue doing what they were doing, and they needed to keep fighting for this country. I think they all had gotten the bug of how exciting a political campaign could be. It was like the greatest summer camp experience you could ever think of. 
And I wanted them to know, first of all, how much I appreciated them, but I wanted them to know that this was really, really important work and that they should keep doing it. The only way we were going to change the country is if wonderful young people like them would pursue this and keep fighting until we could make our country what it can be and what it should be. My mom then went from the room where she addressed the staff to the larger watch party. Having been there in person, I can tell you that my mom was perhaps more inspiring last Tuesday night than ever before. She didn't for one second break down. She exuded strength and leadership despite saddening circumstances. She made every person there feel her gratitude for their help throughout the process and feel her determination to keep pushing for a better future. When I first walked into the room, you have to remember the room was full of friends, family, people that I had gotten to know across the campaign, unbelievable volunteers. And so when I walked in, they wanted to come over and congratulate me. Not that they thought we were going to win, but they just felt like we'd done such a good job with the race. So I was just embraced by person after person. Then my closest friends, there are five families that have been very close for ages. And the women all just surrounded me. And we stood arm in arm, really laughing for, I don't know, it felt like minutes. And I just thought, okay, you know what? I have this incredible community. I have this incredible support system. And we did something really great. We showed what you can do in a terribly gerrymandered system with an opponent who lied and was just awful in the way he came after me. But here I was, surrounded by these wonderful friends, person after person, thanking me, hugging me, expressing what an important thing this was that we had done together. And then they said, okay, it's my team said, it's time, you got to go speak. My family walked up there. My husband spoke so beautifully in introducing me. I mean, you couldn't have asked for a better introduction from someone who you love and who knows you so well. And then I got up to speak. Even though I didn't think I was going to lose, I did put a lot of thought into the lost speech. And I figured this was my chance to thank everybody and to tell them how important our work was. And I got to say some things that I, I hadn't said quite so clearly during the campaign because I was so disciplined in my message during the campaign. But this was my opportunity to be a little bit more bold in some of the things that I said. And that was a relief I felt great about it. I will never forget hearing that speech. I stood with my sister, brother, and dad behind my mom looking out to the crowd. I saw the faces of hundreds of people who were inspired, hopeful, and moved to keep on fighting. My mom's words proved yet again that she's the kind of leader that we need. For those of you who couldn't be there live, here's a bit of her message. She said, We know change is possible, and we know change is required. We must continue working together to make this country what it can be and what it should be. We worked so hard. We had an uphill battle. I was always optimistic. Didn't work out. But we made a real statement. And we gave him a run for his money. I mean, it was a celebration. And I know that sounds funny because 
there were so many of the young people crying in front, and I, I felt so terrible for them because I know they put their hearts and souls into this. But I wanted them to feel like you can take a risk. You can put yourself out there, put everything into it. And just because you don't win doesn't mean you failed. You can keep going. And I felt like I had succeeded in inspiring a lot of these young people. And that was the most important thing of all. The change that we need to keep fighting for is multifaceted. Some structural barriers that stand in the way of women winning elections in greater numbers are voter suppression and gerrymandering. In some places, those parts of our electoral system currently prevent each person's vote from having a real impact. Federal judges once again ruling North Carolina's congressional districts are unconstitutional. The three-judge panel ruling tonight that Republicans drew the districts with excessive partisanship. Here's Ashanti again on voter suppression. What did not work well and will continue not to work well until we change things is with voter suppression. If we just want to look at what happened in Georgia, we absolutely know that there are going to be voter protection issues. Do we know that it was going to be at this grand scale? No. But to see people who are saying that they received their mail-in ballot late, not allowing them enough time to return it and have their vote cast, people who did send in their ballots and is still showing up that it's not being counted. We're seeing in Florida that there were boxes of provisional ballots left behind. You had people waiting in line for four or more hours to be able to vote, this predominantly in communities of color, when there were several election voting machines that could have been brought out but didn't. It's something that we definitely have to address ahead of 2020, because if we thought 2018 was bad, 2020 is only going to be worse. And when you think about voter suppression, it really impacts women young people, and seniors. So for us, we really do need to make sure that the voices of those people are heard because they're the marginalized people in this society. Our country benefits from competition between different political parties, but not when the system's rigged and not when certain factions feel it's acceptable to lie in order to win. That happened in multiple ads targeted against my mom during the election. The ads weren't just sort of exaggerations of the truth. They were entirely fabricated and in some cases actually defamatory. My two worst days were the days when the two lie-filled ads came out. And I'm not going to call them negative ads because there were plenty of negative ads that didn't bother me. As long as they were negative about issues, even though they were stupid and they twisted everything, if they were on the issues, I felt like that was fair game. But when they flat-out lied about me taking money from the government, me mismanaging a charitable organization. They accused me of coming in to take over a charitable organization. And they said that when I started as chair, the foundation had a $30 million profit. And after one year of my being in charge, they had a $3 million loss. It was a flat out lie. In fact, the $30 million that they called profit was money I had raised for a new performing arts center. And it wasn't lost. It was moved to a different account so that we could start using it to build the performing arts center that I raised the money for. So it was just a flat out lie. So those two days watching those ads, and they came a couple weeks apart, those were deflating days. And then 
during the debate and during the subsequent TV interview together the next day. And my opponent just kept talking about those things as if they were facts. Even though we'd gotten two TV stations to pull down one of the ads because we were able to prove it was false. And the other ad, PolitiFact, declared it totally false. And the charity actually hired a lawyer who filed cease and desist letters. But those cease and desist letters came late on a Friday afternoon, and those stations played the ads all weekend, almost nonstop. So that by the time Monday came around, the damage had already been done. But during both the debate and the TV interview, my opponent just doubled down on those, just kept saying it like it was true. And the only time I think I ever lost my cool in the course of the campaign was in the second interview when he just kept hammering away at that. And I just turned to him and said, that is a flat out lie. You should be absolutely ashamed of yourself. And this is worthy of a defamation lawsuit. And his eyes got big as saucers. And he looked at me and I really thought it was the first time he ever thought of me as an actual real person and not some cardboard figure that his campaign manager had told him I was. You know, he didn't know me at all. We'd never spent any time together. And when he got that look on his face, I just realized not only did he not know me, he just never thought of me as a real person. He thought this was some game that you were supposed to play. In fact, on election day, one of the pastors said, I just watched your debate. I said, oh, what'd you think? He said, boy, I'd never seen that side of you. You're a fighter, aren't you? (laughs) And I just kind of laughed. I said, well, yeah, when I think something's wrong, you can be sure I'm going to fight for it. You know, there are other things, there are ups and downs, and it's a roller coaster. But those were the only times when I just thought, boy, politics is really unnecessarily ugly. Still, for my mom, the good of running vastly outweighed the bad. I learned an enormous amount. First of all, I learned how you run a campaign, what it really takes. And I don't think most people have any inkling of how exhausting and difficult it is to run a campaign. It's physically exhausting, it's intellectually and emotionally exhausting, and it's really hard on the family. I don't know how people with young kids do it. And I don't know how people do it who have to work while they're campaigning because it's it's a full-time job. But It was exhilarating. You have a steep learning curve, which I found really interesting. You meet incredible people. I met incredible people everywhere I went, from Greensboro and High Point, which are in my county, Guilford County, to all four rural counties. I met wonderful, wonderful people. I learned the charm of those different areas. I learned the challenges that they faced. I found people were so open to getting to know me, listening to what I was all about, figuring out what my values were, what I wanted to fight for. And then they shared their stories with me. They shared really personal stories that increased my motivation to win because they really need somebody to fight for them. It was fun to challenge myself to go to all these different events and just walk into a place where I knew nobody and shake hands and introduce myself and strike up conversations. And we did that at everything from the Cheerwine Festival in Salisbury to the Tomato Festival in Woodley to the Barbecue Festival in Lexington. And those were really fun. I learned the difference between 
how tough it is to campaign before you have ads on TV when nobody knows who you are. And then when the ads go up on TV, it's like magic. All of a sudden, people know who you are. I have so many fond memories. I can't put them together yet because it just ended yesterday. The fun dramatically outweighed the negatives because I like meeting people. I like talking about the issues. And I like the connections that I was able to make. I just got a call from a guy who has run for public office before, and he was very supportive of me and introduced his family and his friends in one of the more rural areas. I had known him in passing when the campaign started, but now I know him and I know his parents and I know the people he grew up with. And so now there's a real relationship there. You know, that's a great thing to get out of this campaign. People appreciate when you step up to run for office. At least that was how I felt. And you saw it when we walked into a restaurant tonight. We couldn't get to our table because so many people were coming up to thank me. And when I went to lunch today, I had people I'd never met before get all excited that I was there and come say, thank you so much. We voted for you. And I mean, here I just lost and they were treating me like I was some great celebrity. I think there's just a hunger for people whose voices are not being heard to feel like somebody's willing to jump in the ring and represent them. The big question now is what happens next? It's a very strange feeling because for almost a year, I was busy all the time. There were certainly evenings where I could come home and sit down and watch a TV show with my husband or read the paper. But generally speaking, every day was planned. Every day I had things on my calendar. I had somebody picking me up and I had to figure out where we were going and what clothes I had to bring. And it was just very, very intense. And all of a sudden, I've got my life back. There's a letdown because there's so much excitement to it. And I can see why people get involved in campaigns because it's a, the only thing I can compare it to from growing up was being in shows being in musicals or being I directed a close harmony singing group and you you practice and practice and practice and then you know it's the day of the show or the week of the shows and you do your performances and and then they're over and you've created this family and and it's finished and I kind of had that feeling about the campaign as we created this great team with this great message and everybody did their jobs and all of a sudden we're done so it's kind of a strange feeling I have a feeling of satisfaction because I think we did it as well as anyone could have done. And so I'm, I'm happy with what we did. And I'm not at a loss at all. I just kind of, it's like the day after your exams in school, it's like, okay, I guess I get to go relax. Do you think that you'll run again? <laughs> oh, I... No, I don't think so because there's no reason to run in a gerrymandered district. I really think we did everything right. I love my consultants. I love the people I worked with. I would probably be a slightly better candidate the second time around because I would, I'd know how you do it from the beginning. But I still don't think I could overcome the gerrymandering of this district. And I don't believe in beating your head against a wall. I figure you gotta go around the wall. I would rather figure out some other way that I can have an impact on changing the things that 
desperately need to be changed because I think our country is going so far in the wrong direction. I'm worried that we have this growing divide that's just going to get worse and worse. And I don't, well, I shouldn't say I don't see a way to change it because Democrats took back the House. That's the good thing. And one of the things that I I am jokingly saying to myself is I helped all those seats that were flipped because we worked so hard. We drew a lot of money. We forced the Republicans to spend an enormous amount of money on this race. And that was money that was taken away from other races. So we helped those other races. I was thinking last night, Greensboro was named after General Green. And General Green was famous because he led the penultimate battle in the Revolutionary War. They lost the battle. I think it was a battle of Guilford Courthouse. But they so weakened the British troops that the next battle was when the British lost the Revolutionary War. So I kind of was thinking, I am the General Green of this scenario. I helped so weaken those other races that I helped flip those other seats. You know, I'm saying it in a laughing way, but I feel like I was part of that big effort to stop what's been happening in Congress and try to create a Congress that's going to be a check and a balance. It was funny. Today, I just didn't want to turn on the news. I didn't want to read the paper. I wanted a day free of politics. And then when we turned on the news at about six o'clock, I was ready for it again. So I'm still going to be watching because I still feel like we're at a crossroads in this country. Our future's at risk. I studied Russian history in college. And one of the things I always found fascinating about Russian history is that the Russians were never able to create the kind of society you had in the United Kingdom or France or Germany. And the reason was they never were able to create a middle class. They always had the haves, the the very, very wealthy, the landowners, the people who owned everything, the aristocracy, and they had the serfs. And they never had that middle class that would have been critical to making them the kind of Western country that we saw elsewhere in Europe and that, of course, that we saw in the United States. And I think that has always been the challenge of the Russians. So when I look at what we have going on right now and I see the diminution of the middle class, I just really worry what's going to happen to us if we have a country of haves and have-nots. In some ways, change really did happen overnight on Tuesday. A record number of women and a record number of women of color were elected. Here's Ashanti again. We still have a long ways to go. And I mentioned the fact that we did see more women running this cycle and winning. But the fact is, we still don't have as many women running for office as men. We still need more women on the bench running for office. So we do get them as county commissioners on the school board so that they can ascend to Congress. That's really something that we have to continue to work on is recruiting more women to run for office and making sure that they have that support, particularly for Democrats and women. We did not lose power. We did not lose all of these seats over one election cycle. It took several election cycles to lose them, and it's going to take several election cycles to get them back. This is one of the reasons why I pushed against this blue wave narrative. 
there was no way that we were going to take back Senate, the House, governorship, secretaries of states, attorneys general in one election cycle. This is something that we have to be absolutely strategic about, and it's something that I focus on at Emerge. When we look at state houses, in 2020, we have redistricting coming up. A lot of people just started focusing on it in this election cycle, and that is not how you win. That is not how you get more women in elected office. You have to play the long game, and at Emerge, we've been playing the long game for several election cycles. For the women who lost, this may be a hurdle at the beginning of a successful political future. Here's Amanda Hunter. I think we all know and talk about here at the Barbara Lee Family Foundation all day long how women candidates face additional obstacles when running for office. And it can really be daunting to pick yourself up again after a loss. So it's reassuring that this research shows that it's possible for voters to believe a woman is qualified and likable after a loss. And when you look at success stories like Senator Murkowski, who lost and then won a successful write-in campaign with the last name Murkowski, and Senator Hassan, who lost, and Congresswoman Catherine Clark from Massachusetts, who lost her race in 2004 and is now a leader in Congress. There are so many women that have been able to rebound and come back. And so knowing that it's possible, I think, is the first step. And I think a takeaway for supporters in general This year has been so exciting in part because of all of the women who have been activated politically that have gotten involved, even if it's just women who are paying attention to the news for the first time and posting things on social media. And of course, then you get to the marching and the canvassing and and getting more involved in campaigns. Just as important as that type of involvement is not abandoning a candidate that you support when she loses. It's being that person that checks in, that's reassuring and sticks with her loyally after a loss and encourages her to pick herself up because men do that for each other. And it doesn't seem like women naturally do that as much because it's awkward and people don't always want to talk about a loss in that way. Here's my mom, Kathy Manning, one more time. Despite what I said about how rigged things are and how broken politics can seem. We need good people to run. We need women to run for many, many reasons, I think. We need to have equal numbers of women in our government, in the House, in the Senate. They bring a different perspective. They bring a different way of working together. I hope as we see more women in the House, we see more civility because the way I've seen people in Congress talk to each other is just disgusting. So I think it's just critically important for young people to get involved in politics and run for office. You don't have to start with Congress. You can start with school board or city council or something that's more manageable. This democracy will only work if we have really good leaders who are centered and have good values and are doing it for the right reasons. Next week, We're going to talk about what comes next. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. If you didn't, let me know. I really want to hear from you. At Wonder Media Network, we're all about listening to different perspectives. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan. Follow us on Instagram at WMN.media. Or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. Talk to you next week.